Good job, and then we'll stop clapping for you. So. <laughs> so, how many of you have the Bible memorized? Like, if I just asked you to recite the Bible to me, you could do it. The entire Bible. Nobody? Yeah, me neither. Um, the, the longest I've ever memorized is I memorized a chapter of the Bible when I was a kid. My family, they didn't go to church. They started going to church, and I started going as a kid, and I was like, here's the way to get affection and applause from these people. Memorize parts of this book that they use, and people will like you. So I memorized the chapter. Now, it was a New Testament chapter, so it was pretty short. But they were so impressed by this, they paraded me up in front of the church, and I stood behind the pulpit. I'm just this little, like, eight, nine-year-old kid, and I recited this verse I had memorized. And uh, I remember everybody was so impressed. But, you know, back in Bible times, that wouldn't have been very impressive. Um, the fact that I can't remember that chapter at all now today isn't impressive at all. But back in the Old Testament days, if you wanted to be a rabbi, if you wanted to be a traveling teacher, you were probably going to memorize the entire Old Testament or at least large portions of it. The Old Testament is big. That's huge. And so when Jesus started his ministry, he probably either had all of the Old Testament memorized or at least major portions of it. We're talking like 75% of it or more. That's what most of the rabbis did. Jesus knew scripture, he loved scripture, he constantly used it and talked about it, and we know that he taught it in the synagogues, we see multiple examples of that, one of those is in um, Luke 4.17 where he goes into a synagogue, he says, I want to read from the book of Isaiah, and he teaches out of Isaiah, um, he quoted it as he taught, he would often quote passages from the Old Testament, Matthew 5.33 is one of those examples, he would explain it. He'd say, remember, the Old Testament says this. Let me clarify what that means for you. And then he'd, he'd flesh it out for us. Another example there in Matthew 5, 43. He also respected it. He would, he'd be in a disagreement or a discussion with someone. And he'd say, well, you know that Scripture says, the Bible says. And then he'd use that to defend his position. And finally, he said that Scripture was ultimately talking about him. He says that the, the Old Testament was really all about him. He says that in John 5, 39. And so over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how to build our spiritual muscles. We've been talking about how if we want to be spiritually healthy, we need to have some spiritual exercise in our life. If you want to be physically healthy, you diet. You exercise. You make some changes to your life. And if you want to be spiritually healthy, you're going to have to practice some discipline in your spiritual life just like you would in your physical life. And we've talked about how these spiritual exercises are sometimes called the spiritual disciplines. And these are really just practicing the behaviors that Jesus Christ practiced. And over the last few weeks, we've talked about solitude and silence and self-denial and sacrifice and Sabbath, and simplicity, and submission, and then I ran out of words that started with S, so we talked about worship, and prayer, and finally today we're back to a word that starts with S, Scripture. And this is going to be the final message in our series on spiritual discipline. Now, uh, last week I told you that worship, and prayer, and Scripture are what I call the big three of the spiritual disciplines, because all the other disciplines come into play when you practice worship and prayer and study and devotion to scripture. So I started thinking about this. So where am I going to talk about Jesus's relationships to the scripture? 
And like I said, Jesus talks about the scripture a lot. He talks about God's word a lot. And, and I started thinking about, like, where am I going to go for this message? And I thought about where Jesus said, hey, everything in scripture is going to be fulfilled. Nothing's going to be lost. Not a little exclamation point. Not a little period. Everything's going to be accomplished. And I went back and forth about where to talk about Jesus's relationship to scripture. But I finally settled in on this story of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and how scripture came into play in that encounter. So we're going to look at Luke chapter four, starting in verse one. <coughs> Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness. And for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And at the end of the days he was hungry. I get hungry in 40 minutes. It took him 40 days, but... Um, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a moment all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, I'll give it all to you. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him began to spread through the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues. And everyone praised him. Now, first of all, before we really get into some of Jesus' relationship with Scripture here and some of the spiritual disciplines we can pull out of this about uh, using scripture to build our spiritual muscles. I want to note here that at the beginning of the story, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and that led him directly into the path of the devil. Following God, following where the Spirit wanted to, him to go, actually led to him having an encounter with his spiritual enemy. Pursuing God's purpose for your life doesn't mean you're going to end up in the safest spot. It might mean that you end up on the spiritual front lines. Now, I think pursuing God's purpose is the most meaningful, it's the greatest and best path through life. But if the will of God took Jesus into the, into the desert to face the devil and ultimately to the cross to die for us, the will of God is sometimes going to lead you to spiritually hard places and into conflict with spiritual adversaries. But we know God is greater. Like, we don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be fearful about that. But I think it's something we need to think about, that sometimes we imagine that if we follow God, man, everything's going to go great for us. We're going to be safe and comfortable and happy. But if you're going to follow God, that means you're going to actually be pushing back darkness in that world. And that means that darkness isn't going to like that and it's going to shove back. The center of God's purpose for you isn't the safest place on earth. It's probably the most dangerous place on earth. But I think it's the most exciting, most impactful, most meaningful place you can be. Getting excited about God puts a bullseye on your back. But God is bigger than any enemy that can come against you. 
Sometimes someone starts to get serious about following Jesus. They say, I want to be a student of the way Jesus lived and loved. And then some conflict or trouble comes into their life. And they're like, what's this? I thought Jesus was going to make my life all better. And instantly I'd be rich and famous. And I'm like, if you follow Jesus, the enemy is not going to sit over there and say, you know what? Have a good time. That's fine with me. As long as you're comfortable and distracted, why would the devil care? You're not doing anything. You're not making any impact. But he starts paying attention when you start getting serious about transforming this world for Jesus and with Jesus. Now, it says here that Jesus was fasting from food and he had gone 40 days. And if I miss one meal, I turn into a grump. Like sometimes when Darby and I are traveling and I'm like, I hate driving in a car. I just hate it. Like I'll drive 15 minutes. I'm like, too long. I want to get out of this car. But occasionally we'll drive back and see our families in Tennessee or Georgia. That's a long drive. It's like 12, 13, 14 hours. And I'm like, we're not stopping. We're just going. We're going to get this drive over as soon as possible. And pretty soon I get hungry. About 40 minutes in, you know, to the trip. And uh, I'm like, just keep driving. We keep driving. And I get grumpier and grumpier and grumpier. And finally Darby's like, eat this beef jerky. Like, we've got to eat something because if you don't eat, you're going to be a grump the rest of the trip. And I refuse to ride with someone that's this grump. But Jesus here went without food for 40 days. And what does the, the devil say to him? He says, why don't you eat this bread? Why don't you turn these stones into bread? You can do whatever you want. And what the devil was whispering to him was, you have a need that's not being met. You're hungry. That's real. The devil's lies often start with a real need that we feel, something that we really need, something that we really want, but it builds from there and suggests that we get something that we really need or we really want in a timing that doesn't line up with God. Every time we see the devil in Scripture, he starts telling lies, and all lies that he tells start with this simple lie, God is it good or you would have what you need. God isn't good or you would have what you want. If you go back to the very beginning in Genesis, when he tempts Adam and Eve, and what does he say? Like, isn't that a good tree over there? Why don't you eat from that one? God told us not to. And he says, if God was good, wouldn't he let you eat from a good tree? It, uh, the lies that Satan tells us, and it's the same lies that he tells us today, is there's things that you need, there's things that you want, but you don't have them because God's not that's really the only lie that Satan has. Every lie that we hear from him is really some version of this lie. But if we fall for this lie, we will fall for any lie. See, if we stop believing that God is good, we've lost everything. The foundation for everything that we believe, everything that Jesus is, starts with believing this, that God is good. Jesus answers this lie of Satan here with scripture. And I think one of the best ways to answer the lies that sometimes come into my head, that are whispered into my heart, is with Scripture. When Satan starts saying, you're worthless, you're garbage, you're no good, I remind myself what Scripture says. Jesus calls me a son of God. He says that I have a place in the kingdom of God. He calls me friend and son and brother. I have to use scripture to refute the lies that Satan tells us. I was at a gathering a couple months ago in Boston, and it had church planters, men and women starting churches all across uh, New England and uh, the Northeast. 
and we were all gathered together in a room and someone stood up and said, how many of you have heard this lie? I'm unfit to start a church. This thing's failing. I'm worthless. I've wasted my time. Everybody in that room raised their hand. They all heard the exact same lie. Now, why is that? Because I think we all have the exact same enemy. And how do we respond to these lies? With the promises of a good God. Knowing scripture, reading scripture helps refute the lies that come into our hearts and our heads. Joseph Goebel said, if you tell a lie long enough and loud enough, people will believe it. You know who Joseph Goebel was? He was the PR man for Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. And this was his quote. This was essentially the Nazi platform. If you tell a lie long enough and loud enough, people will believe it. And they told lies about people's value and worth long enough and loud enough and people started to believe it. And if we're not careful, the enemy is constantly telling lies to our heads and our hearts. And if we're not counteracting those lies with the truth of who God is and how he feels about us, we will feel wretched and worthless. But you know, if we read the scriptures, what we see is God did not crush us or destroy us. He did not come, he did not send Jesus into the world with a club to beat us over the head and say what garbage people we were. Instead, he came and died in our place so that we might take his place in heaven. He traded the worst part about us, this destructive tendency to desire what we want selfishly that hurts ourselves and hurts others. And he traded us for the best part of himself, his right standing with God. And Jesus rebukes the devil here and he says, man must not live on bread alone. Like Jesus is saying, you don't need just bread to live. There's more to life than just eating. There's more to life than just what you need physically to survive. Humanity also needs spiritual food to survive. If you go without eating, you'll eventually die. If you go without feeding your soul, you will spiritually die. Your stomach needs food just like your soul needs scripture. You're starving your soul when you're avoiding the Bible. And there's been times in my life where I'm busy or I'm distracted and the Bible becomes an afterthought. And it doesn't take very long for my soul to be hungry. And I'm like, what's this feeling? Why am I just restless and anxious? And I haven't been building my spiritual muscles. I've been starving my soul. In Psalm 19.10, the psalmist says, Your words and your commands, your scripture, the Bible, are sweeter than honey, better than honey, right off the honeycomb, fresh from the high. He's not talking about, like, chewing up pieces of paper. When I went to school in rural Tennessee as a kid, there would be some kids who were really hungry, and they'd come in and they'd literally eat their textbooks. They would, like, the teacher wasn't looking, they'd tear out pages, and they're like, mm. you'd look over, and the girl next to you would just have a mouthful of paper, like, chewing on it. I'm like, My, I have extra lunch. I'm happy to share it. Just stop eating your textbook. Um, he's not saying that we eat the Bible. What he's saying is, my soul is fed when I read Scripture when I encounter God through the Word of God. Every day, you, your body needs to eat to live. Every day, your soul needs to read to live. You need to feed on the truth of God's Word to be reminded about how He feels about you and what He's done for you, how much He loves you. If you don't feed your soul Scripture, you'll starve it, and starved souls do desperate things. Have you ever seen yourself do something just really stupid? You look back and you're like, man, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? 
Why did I do that? Why did I look at that? Why did I go there? Why did that happen? Many times we've starved our soul. And you know what? When I'm really hungry, I do stupid things. I get grumpy. If your soul is really hungry for scripture, you'll do stupid things. Now you notice next that Satan here offers a shortcut to Jesus. He says, hey, okay, you're not going to turn these uh, stones into bread. Well, how about this? Let me show you all the kingdoms of the world. You've come into the world to rescue these people. For some reason, you want these pitiful people. I'll tell you what. Just bow down and worship me one time, and I'll give these people to you. I know that you plan to rescue them by dying, but I have a less painful route for you to take. I have an easier route. I have a shortcut where you can get the same results. Just worship me, and I'll give you these people. You can have this garbage world if you just worship me. Satan will always suggest a path of least resistance. He'll always say, you know what, there's an easier way to do this. God's taking you the hard way. Why don't we go the easy way? But if something is meaningful, if something matters, it always requires effort and sacrifice in this world. Think about anything meaningful, anything that matters. It's never instantaneous, and it always requires sacrifice and effort. Now, I do not frequent a gym as much as I should. Like, I should go to the gym. But when, last time I went to the gym, it's been a while, but last time I went, there was a sign up on the wall and it said, no pain, no gain. We understand that when it comes to being physically healthy, right? Everybody would say, yeah, that makes sense, that's true. You gotta work out your muscles to grow. But the same thing's true of our spiritual lives. Sometimes we want, we want the most results with the smallest amount of effort or pain. But Jesus here did not take the bait. See, Scripture reminded him that the most meaningful things in our world happen through pain, not by avoiding pain. How do relationships get stronger? Well, you come together with someone, and then you have conflicts, and you work through those conflicts, and you grow stronger as you work through difficulties together. Birth pain leads to the joy of parenting. The cross led to the ability to know God and experience him daily. Shortcuts don't bring about the results we really want. We'd all love shortcuts that avoid pain, that avoid sacrifice. But what happens is when we avoid pain, we just end up avoiding the results we really want. Scripture reprioritizes our worship. And here Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When I look at scripture, it reminds me that Jesus is worth what I am suffering and what I am sacrificing. That no matter what it's costing me to follow him, he's always paid a higher price and he's always worth more of my love and my devotion. Jesus is worthy of sacrifice and pain and persecution. He's worthy of me being uncomfortable and suffering things that are See, when I read scripture, what it reminds me a lot of times is that I'm actually worshiping comfort and calling it God instead of worshiping God and being willing to sacrifice my comfort. I want things to be easy instead of God honoring. I want things to center around my desires and not his desires. Scripture recalibrates our hearts and our minds and our lives so that we align with so Jesus just keeps quoting scripture here, and so the devil changes tactics. He quotes scripture back. 
Like just because someone can quote scripture doesn't mean that they're using scripture correctly or that they're a good source to use scripture. I've heard people on both political sides of things use scripture and I'm like, that's not what that verse is saying. Like, where are you getting this from? But they're like, maybe I can convince people if I just quote the scripture. I've used scripture before and I've had to come back and say, hey, actually how I used that here was wrong. I misused it. Just because someone knows scripture doesn't mean that they aren't misusing it or trying to manipulate someone with it or are just plain ignorant about what it actually means. Now, I hate when someone twists my words. I remember one time in Tennessee, I was in a small group I was teaching and uh, I was just trying to be authentic and share. I was in my mid-20s and I was like, hey, I got to be careful as a young man, as a single man about where, what I look at and uh, what I see because I want to guard my heart and my mind. I don't want any lustful thoughts in my head. And I was like, I just have to be careful. And so I started sharing some of that with this mixed group of people in this room. And, um, you know, I thought I was very clear about what I was saying. Well, then someone comes up to me and they say, hey, that one lady from your class, she's going around telling everybody you've got a problem looking at new pornography. And I was like, what? That's not what I said. I said, I try to be careful about what I look at, you know? But in her mind, she took that and began to twist those words and go around. And so I went to talk to her and I was like, I never said that. She's like, yeah, but you kind of meant that, right? I was like, no, that's not what I meant. She twisted my words and then it became this big thing. You know, I'm talking to people and they're like, so I heard this about you. I'm like, that's not what's going on. I was just trying to be authentic and share about where I was at. And it was very frustrating when someone took what I said and twisted it. Right? They, they heard what they wanted to hear and then added some onto it. If I was annoyed by that, I wonder how God feels when we take something that he said, something out of his word, and then we're like, let me see if I can manipulate somebody with this. Let me see if I can reuse what God said to defend what I want and win an argument with someone. I wonder how God feels when someone who never reads his word, quickly Googles a verse to support their political position or to defend their selfishness. The more scripture I read and the more of God I experience in scripture, the better I can identify and reject misuses of scripture. The, the more that I read of this book as I get a cohesive vision of God's love and his redeeming plan and his relationship he wants to share with humanity, the more I can see how someone uses scripture and I say, oh, that doesn't fit into the overarching story or arc of what he's trying to say. You know, the internet has created a platform where, you know, you say something and then people jump on Twitter and they throw up things that I'm thinking like, did, where did you even get this? Did you even read the rest of the chapter or did you simply Google a verse that had this word in it? We need to know this book and be intimately familiar with it so that we can reject misuse and embrace truth. In 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, There's a time that's coming when people will not put up with the truth God wants to share with us. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them teachers that say what their ears want to hear. And I think a lot of times it's easier to listen to someone who's saying something that we like instead of listening to someone who's saying what we need to hear. But I don't want to hear lies, even if they're pleasant, because I want to live and love more like Jesus. So I want to hear things that are true. I want truth to weed lies out of my life so that I can live and love like Jesus did. See, lies end up ensnaring us 
but the truth sets us free. Finally, you see the result here of Jesus knowing and using Scripture. In verse 15, uh, 14 and 15, he went out in the power of the Spirit and he taught in their synagogues. He was empowered, <coughs> excuse me, he was empowered to transform the world and his experience that he had allowed him to share what God was doing with others. As we pour scripture into our soul, the overflow is going to be transformation in our lives, in our surrounding communities, and us having things to share with the people around us. As we pour scripture into our soul, scripture will spill over into our conversations and our relationships so that what we're experiencing with God can be shared with others. God always blesses a person to bless a people. God always grows a person so that he can grow now, in our last series, before we talked about the spiritual disciplines, we did a, a look at Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. And we answered all these questions about what the Bible is and what it isn't. And remember, I talked about there's two major ways of looking at the Bible, right? It can either be an informational book or it can be a relational book. And you know the position I take. I think the Bible is a relational book. It's a way for us to experience the presence and the person of God. But I think if we're honest, a lot of us come to the Bible and we say, okay, I want to have a relationship with God. I want to experience his presence. I want to experience the person of God, but I don't know how to approach this book. I believe there's, there's elements of God's character and nature that you can't learn in a classroom, that you have to experience in the presence of God. And so I've really started trying to move from what was really an academic study of the Bible, I mean, that's what Bible college and that's what seminary taught me was how do you take the Bible and academically learn what's there, interpret it, and use it in your life? To saying, okay, how can I look at this passage? How can I use this as a portal into the presence of God to get to know this person who is God? And you might say, I don't even know if this is a divine book, Alex. I, I would say, have some encounters with it, and see if you encounter a divine God. And here's what I'm going to suggest. Moving from my background where I purely looked at it academically to where I'm trying to have more of an experience with God as I look at it. Read the Bible every day. But before you read it, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the Word. Not just help me understand it, but Holy Spirit, let me encounter you as I read this. Speak to me impact me. And then as you read, ask questions of the text. Why did they say this? Why did they say nothing about this? What in the world is going on here? Who is this person? How does this tie in? Ask questions. And what this means is you probably won't be reading a long section, but you're going to be spending a lot of time in a small section. Second, meditate. Meditate on the scriptures. Be silent and reflect on what you just read. Play the events of the passage that you just read out in your head and listen quietly for the voice of God. Sometimes for me, it helps if I memorize a, a small passage or a verse from a passage and I just say it to myself over and over again throughout the day. That's meditating on the word of God, just keeping it fresh in my mind. And what happens is many times as I do that, I feel God begin to speak into my spirit and my soul. It goes from just being a dead, lifeless book with ink on a page into something that's working in my soul and in my mind. 
and then pray. What I do sometimes is I pray the passage out loud to God. I just take what's written and I pray it. Sometimes I'll change a few words to personalize it, but I just pray it out to God. I dialogue with God about the passage, about what's happening, what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing, how it's reflected in my life. I pray what is written to God. And finally, I uh, contemplate. I take time to think, what is God saying to me through this passage? What does he want me to feel as a result of this passage? And what do I need to practice as a result of this passage? There's sometimes where I'll read a passage and I'll slowly practice this. I'm just reading a few verses so that I can sit and meditate and pray it back to God. And I'll read a passage and it's just overwhelming. God's like, I love you and I want you to know that I'm with you and I'm for you. Or sometimes he'll challenge me and he'll say, this passage, this reminds me, Alex, of how you once loved me, but now you've faltered in your love. You're not as faithful as you once were. And he would challenge me. But over and over again, I find encouragement and challenge to grow and to live and love like Jesus when I slow down and I take time to encounter God through the Word of God. And then we've talked about in all our spiritual disciplines about the spiritual disciplines really come to life when we enjoy them in community. And so discuss what you're learning together. There's sometimes where um, I'll take something that I'm reading and I'll just share it with some people and I'll say, hey, this is what I saw today and it was really cool. Or Darby will say, hey, I read this and it was really good and she'll share it with me. Or I have some friends who will say, hey, I saw this verse. I have a pastor friend over in Philly and sometimes he'll say, I saw this verse, Alex, and God made me think of you. And he'll send it to me. Start Bible studies together. Ask questions from people that you trust. Discuss and encourage each other with what you're reading. Now, over the last few weeks, like I said, we've looked at all these spiritual disciplines, and we've talked about how to integrate them into our lives. Because if I talk to you about physical exercise, but I was like, I'm not going to give you any weights to actually lift with, just good luck. I probably, we wouldn't see a lot of physical change, right? What I'm going to do is write up a simple way to integrate all the spiritual disciplines in your week. And uh, I'm going to have that resource next week for you guys. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know you and encounter you and experience you through these words that were written down. God, I'm thankful for what you've shown me about yourself through this book. And I'm thankful for the times that you've spoken directly into my life from this book. Lord, I think of the times when I was ready to give up. I couldn't go forward. And I opened up the Bible to the book of Zechariah. And this story about someone who lived thousands of years ago is like my story. And it felt like every word that you said to these characters, to these people that existed long before I was born, were words spoken right into my heart. God, I'm thankful that you're able to use this book to communicate who you are and how much you love us here. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that through Jesus we can know you and we can live and love like he did. And I pray this morning that you are glorified, that we become people passionate about your word because we're passionate about experiencing you. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ will.